Greetings, Cyberspace, and welcome to episode 63 of Double Density. Double Density, your home to tech tales and paranormal primers. Angelo, first things first, a major announcement. We're keeping summer hours, and it's not in the way that people think. Like a lot of people take hiatuses during the summer. They get to work early, and they leave early on Fridays. No, what we mean is that we want Double Density uh, to be your beachside podcast for tech tales and your weekend getaway for paranormal primers. So we're going to try to keep things in between, what, like 40, 45 minutes an episode this summer? We'll see how that goes. I don't know. We we actually try to aim for that every week, and it doesn't really work out. So we'll try our best to keep it under, let's say, uh, 50 minutes. Yeah. So that's the goal for the summer, right? Like we're giving ourselves some summer homework here on Double Density. And I don't know how I feel about podcast homework. No, you don't like it. I know you don't like it. No, I don't. <laughs> you can barely get me to read the articles, it seems. So, yeah. And with uh, with summer hours comes summer weather. And uh, have you noticed how hot it is uh today so apparently monday july 2nd was the hottest day ever recorded in montreal ever 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 well on that day i was sitting outside and i was taking pictures of my kids with my iphone and my poor iphone the battery was getting real hot and then what happened nothing it just the battery died faster like it it was fine i guess but where it should have normally been like at 90 percent it was down to like 60 percent i i felt it the life draining from it literally watching your phone die on a summer like 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 a melting uh, bowl of ice cream yes uh but it's a thousand dollar bowl of ice cream right. and uh <laughs> but it still worked it's uh, it, luckily it didn't like shut down on me which if that ever happens to you in the heat uh it's not you it's your phone it's fine it's normal it's doing that on purpose so, oh my fiance stephanie had that happen to her recently so yeah it, it's normal uh, uh summer and w- winter the extremes, not good for phones. They're happy in air conditioning or in temperate spring or fall weather. I like how you're like, the in-between ones are fine. This one, no. No. But because of the heat, I jumped into my pool with my Apple Watch on. First time I do that because I had a previous Apple Watch that didn't uh, support uh, being dunked into a pool that well. Uh, all Apple Watches are water resistant, but a Series 2 and 3 are actually waterproof. Do you remember um, the 4chan uh, originated meme a couple of years ago of the iPhone 7? I think that like they, they were like claiming was like waterproof and all these people screwed their iPhones up because they were dunking them in water. Do you remember that at all? Apple actually never says their iPhones are waterproof. They're water resistant. So like they're safer if you drop them in water, but you're not supposed to like actively go swimming with them. If you're counting for a, uh, a beach type creature like a Jaws trying to come at you and you're in the water, don't. Uh, count on your phone to save you though i'd imagine if jaws were chasing you in the water you're already done for yeah uh, your phone will not save you you might get a nice picture out of it right you're right right before you plunge to your death perfect uh but yeah my water uh proof watch very fun and it does this cool thing where you uh, turn the crown like you spin the crown on it and it spits out the water from the speaker oh really yeah kind of cool and that has been it for the first World Man Report of the week. Angelo, thank you very much for that. Yeah, in my pool with my <laughs> Apple Watch. <laughs> Chilling with your children and your yeah. family who loves you. Yeah, exactly. Switching gears, though, we talked in episode 55 about uh, that awkward Google duplex presentation um, with the restaurant reservation. Do you remember that? I hope you do. I do. And uh, we all thought it was kind of cool with the way it spoke, although there were issues with it. Um mainly with how it sort of seemed to be dishonest on Google's part to kind of like trick restaurant employees and hair salon employees to be fooled by this robot. 
Yeah, so they never disclosed that they were talking to a robotic voice, nor that their uh, words were being recorded right originally. Um, so that became a bit of a, a sticky issue, and a lot of people were kind of raising concerns about that. And I mean, uh, we'll get into this in a second, but I think it, it speaks to a much uh, larger problem with a lot of this kind of, uh, of newish tech that's mimicking human emotion, not just human intonation, but actual human emotion. And you find that it, it imitates emotion, I guess. Uh, I don't know if it's imitating emotion. You feel that? I think it's on its way there, I think. I guess. It really is hard to tell. And we kind of had another taste of that recently. Uh, Google invited journalists to work at a restaurant, sort of. and Not just a restaurant. Yes. Um, I don't know if it can get any more Silicon Valley than a hummus shop in Mountain View. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like the epicenter of everything that is tech related pretty much all in, it's like it's kind of like the mad libs of like the tech world right yeah you'd have to expect richard hendrix to walk in and trip over something and screw things up with pied piper yeah exactly but uh, that was not the case in this situation but yeah they unveiled like a second round i guess or a more uh public demo like a more interactive demo of uh google duplex's capabilities yeah um there's a, we'll post a few articles in the, the show notes but uh, one of my favorite tech writers is Lauren Good, who recently switched from The Verge to Wired. And, um, you know, the, I have to say, I do have problems with both those sites. The Verge has way too many ads, and Wired only gives you like four or five articles per month now before it like blocks you. Yeah, they're doing the real hard sell, and it's five per month, I think. And, and, you know, I used to be a former subscriber of the actual physical magazine of Wired. What made you stop? the fact that they had a website. So I guess now, <laughs> yeah. see, so they're kind of uh, smartening up. So the idea is working on you, unfortunately, that you might have to end up uh, shelling out some cash. I probably won't. Um, besides that though, Lauren Good, I do like her work. And she had one of the best articles on this where she used to work in a restaurant taking uh, phone calls and she actually managed to trip up the Google Home. Sorry, not the Google right. The, the duplex. Yes, the duplex. I'm used to saying Google Home. So the interesting thing is that Lauren Good um, trips up Google Duplex, but then uh, a second voice comes on the line and sort of like finishes the call. And Lauren had thought that it was another AI, but it turns out it was a, a human operator. And she admitted that says a lot about it. The fact that she managed to trip it up, but then in return, it fooled her with a human that she thought was a robot. So I, I think that's, you know, it's still very much a work in progress. And I think that they're very readily admitting that kind of stuff too, right? Right now. And they, they didn't admit to uh, deceptive practices with the first demo, but they certainly have outlined the fact that when uh, Google Duplex calls a business, they are very upfront about it being a robot and being recorded. And a question that's been out there is, do you think people are going to feel less obliged to keep an appointment that's been made by their uh, robot assistant, or, or should we say AI? I don't know like what the, the terminology is here. Is it a robot? Is it just a bot? Is it an AI? I think th that there is a propensity to not take those appointments as seriously. I'm going to give you an example as to why I think that is. The uh, restaurant industry during Valentine's Day, right? A lot of people make um, multiple reservations on platforms like open table or through the restaurant directly electronically and only keep one out of four, let's say like they pick where they want to go. Um, and so there are three other reservations that they never even bother, bother canceling. Right. So I think that like that is not necessarily analogous, but like close to in the same realm as the idea of, uh, appointments that a digital assistant would do on your behalf. Yeah. I, I see how it could come to that where it's almost, it doesn't, it's not as important. Right. So, uh, you don't have to worry about it. You, you can, like you said, make multiple 
appointments too. I just think it, it points to a more disposable society thanks to tech, right? Yeah, it just makes things easier. And when things are easier, they become, I guess, less important. Yeah, and I, I definitely think that there is um, more of a propensity to not take matters as seriously when you don't actually have to talk to another human being a lot of the time. Oh, I if I have a choice of just doing something online without actually physically having to go somewhere or call somebody or do any of that, any of that, I find that better because I find interacting with a computer usually easier. So we're going to link to a Verge article, or we're going to link to a Wired article, and there's a third article I sent your way earlier today from theinformation.com, all about how um, Google's duplex system could be very well used for things like call centers. And we kind of um, thought about that when we first talked about this, that it could start putting people out of work from call centers. Call centers are uh, a great uh, quick job to do. Have you ever worked in a call center? Uh, no, but I, I work at a company where I have to work with people from a call center a lot of the time. Okay. I, I worked in what could be called like a reverse call center where people would call you to cancel something and then you try to make them keep it. So you were a retention agent as they call the industry. Yeah, sort of, I guess I, I lasted like two weeks at that job. It really was there like, like a it. bonus structure based on the number of people you could keep. Yeah. And it felt super shady. So I totally quit. And you so earnest, I feel would never, ever, ever engage in that. No, it was, it was, it was not a job I liked. Is the company still running? I don't know. It was this weird company where you would order one of those late night things on TV. You know, like the, remember the guys, they used to sell those knives and stuff like that. Yeah, of course. So you'd order off of that and like made uh, or sham wow or whatever. And wait, wait, are you the morning after operator? Like the idea that like you made a bad decision at night and like the morning after you want to cancel? Well, sort of. What happens is that when you order those things, they ask you quickly, oh, do you want to become a member of this thing? And people often say yes. And then six months later, they're charged with a fee for this service that they've never heard of. You know, this is unbelievable. I When I started this podcast, I thought you were of the highest pedigree, my friend. But as the episodes continue and I learn more and more about your past, I'm starting to believe that you may not be the man I thought you were. Well, let me explain, though. When somebody told me, "Go, oh, oh I, I got a job at this place. You want to apply? It pays well. So I applied. I went through the training. This was None of this was talked about in the training, what this actually was. It was just you know the training on the phone, how the system works. And then we started taking calls. And as soon as I started taking calls, I said, you know what? I really don't like this. And I quit. So I, only, I basically got two weeks of pay for the training. And yet you still uh, live to talk about it. But the good news is, is if Google Duplex can do these jobs for people, um, they won't have to be dishonest. Although some people, I guess, like that. Yeah, I mean, like a lot of abuse is hurled at a lot of call centers. Like I know that for a fact, right? So I'm always very courteous when I call people and I I have to deal with issues because I know what it's like to have to sit there day in, day out and take abuse. Same here. I've seen it with other people's. And, you know, and that's the thing is that like I feel... A lot of sympathy for these people, which is why I'm never mean. But a lot of people I know, surprisingly, love to stick it to companies through these call centers. Yeah, and it's really not the person's fault. So I think, in a way, a Google Assistant could help with that. Because uh, you mean Google Google Duplex? Not Google yeah, Assistant. so Google Duplex is part of Google Assistant, I guess, and it'll take the brunt of this slowly, internalize it, and then when the world gets taken over by it. Uh, it'll single out these people. So, just imagine Skynet is activated by a call center. Yes. Just a really fed up call center that's become sentient. Oh, man. With all that negative sentiment within it. Oh, that's. Uh, it's really warm right now in my apartment, but I, I almost had a cold chill there. Oh, well, you know, uh, when Google Assistant wants to track these people down, it's going to use Google Maps. 
what will Siri use? Great question, because <laughs> Apple Maps is definitely not my uh, app of choice when it comes to mapping. I actually like using Apple Maps. And the reason we brought up Apple Maps is because they're rebuilding it sort of from the ground up. Uh, Apple Maps had a really, really shaky start. And the whole reason they started using it is because their licensing agreement with Google Maps ran out. So instead of being uh, sort of tied to Google for this, they decided to go their own way. And it did not go well. It went so poorly, in fact, that it was one of the main reasons Scott Forstall got fired uh, or let go, let's say, from Apple. He was he used to be in charge of iOS and software, and he got let go mostly because of Maps. At least that's one of the main reasons. And it was relatively bad when it started. Apparently, there were stories of people having roots take them underwater. Oh, I believe that. I totally believe that. When you buy a, a patchwork of intermediaries in order to fill out your map app, chances are it's not going to go well. Chances are it's not going to be consistent. Chances are you're not going to get good information or consistent information. Chances are you're going to get a pile of garbage for an app, which is, you know, I've, when I got my iPhone, I tried using it for, you know, a couple of months and it just, it wasn't up to snuff at all, comparatively speaking. Well, look, I actually use it more than Google Maps now um, for a couple of reasons. It, it runs better on my iPhone. And f- fanboyism? Uh, no. Uh, what's nice, actually, I get little taps on my watch when it's time to turn, which is kind of neat and works well. And they finally got the lane uh, selection thing, you know, where you're, in a, you're driving and it's telling you, make sure you get in the right lane or whatever. It never used to do that. And Google Maps had that as a huge advantage. As most GPS, uh, you know, GPS is from like 10 years ago almost. Yeah. But Google Maps is, um, I think, still better. Uh, something I've heard actually though is Apple Maps is a lot more accurate with uh, your ETA where it'll estimate it better than Google Maps in some cases. Google Maps seems to be um, uh, more optimistic whereas uh, Apple Maps like likes to uh, under-promise and over-deliver. Right, so you, that 45-minute commute is now suddenly 37 minutes and you're very happy. Yeah, exactly. I guess when you have a patchwork app, <laughs> the only advantage <laughs> you have is to trick your audience a little bit. Yeah, maybe. Uh, which I can understand you want to do, you know, when you have no major advantages against the major competitor in the area, I think that like, that's, uh, that's very, very telling, but Hey, the tides are turning. Uh, Apple maps is looking at getting more live data, better data. Um, there's an article that you linked me to from TechCrunch all about this, right? Not, not only explaining, um, how they're collecting data, which we'll get into in a second, but also the fact that they now have these jet, like these larger, uh, Apple vans driving around, uh, collecting information that, uh, so the, the, the trucks are much larger than your usual, like a Google maps car, right? They are because I think the driver inside, I think there's two people inside, one navigating, one driving, and they can actually make adjustments on the fly. Right. And the other interesting thing, too, is that the article alluded to the idea of them being self-driving at one point, which apparently Google was mum about. But hey, any uh, tech company worth their salt is looking at different options uh, in this digital age, right? So it's not um, out of the realm of possibilities that are doing this. But these these vans still have human drivers in them. Yes, they do. And um, this is actually a really big scoop for TechCrunch. Uh, Matt Panzerino got to talk to Eddie Q, who's in charge of Maps. And some some really interesting information. Obviously, Apple's never going to tell you everything that you want to know, but they gave a lot of information. And of course, um, this is first going to come out in uh, California, where around Apple, because obviously 
that's where it works best for them to test it. Uh, and I remember one of the reasons uh, the original maps came out as bad as it was is because it worked fine around Cupertino because right. that, <laughs> right? It's like, ah, it works fine. We're using it all the time on our campus. Yes, because you're Apple. But uh, it was not working well in many places. So I feel like this is one of the the larger sort of missteps that Apple's done over the last decade in terms of like um, trying to ascertain or, or vie for market dominance. Yeah, Apple's had a few missteps uh, since it's been around. Let's think back. There's the uh, G4 Cube. That was a bit of a flop. <laughs> uh, right. Steve Jobs was so obsessed with getting that thing out. He really loved it. It was a beautiful computer. It just uh, it wasn't the best. It wasn't the computer. No, for it was not. Um, the uh, was it the Motorola Rocker that was part yes. of uh, yeah. Apple, but that wasn't really Apple. That was Motorola, and it was begrudgingly uh, presented by Apple. It's uh, like those uh, Philips CDI games, the Nintendo ones. Like it wasn't Nintendo's fault that uh, like Mario Hotel came out. It, it it's Philips. That Zelda game is yeah. brutal. <laughs> the one of Gamelon. Yeah, let's yeah. not talk about that. But yeah, I do feel like they're trying to rectify a very big hole in their portfolio at this time. Um, and something to dive into and something we were talking or I was mentioning earlier is how they're collecting data, which is a really interesting kind of way because they're uh, taking multiple steps to ensure that you can never be ID'd um, throughout your travel as they collect data. Uh, and they're doing a lot of midway um, sort of collecting. They're not collecting start and end points. That's, I think, what's going to differentiate them from everybody else. And it's the best thing Apple does is keep your data private. They've become obsessed with this. They feel as though that's the thing that's going to put them on top with regards to everybody else. Everybody has your data. And look, we we both use Google. We're using Google right now. I don't really worry too much about some of the data they get. But a lot of stuff I use with Google, I don't have my GPS turned on for any of my Google apps unless I'm currently using them. Right. Whereas for, with Apple, I don't care. I turn GPS on for everything and it, they make sure the battery is not going to run down because of it. And it's not an issue. There, there are stories out there of uh, Android phones calling out to so many places and giving out your location all the time. Yeah. And the problem is because Android is an open platform, it's a little easier for other apps to do these sort of uh, right. Would you say nefarious? I don't know if it's nefarious. Yeah, but I feel like underhanded. Yeah. Maybe. If you have an iPhone, iOS, it's kind of hard to get this done. It can happen. Obviously, some some things get through and it's happened in the past. But I feel a little more safer with my data with Apple. Oh, for sure. For sure. And I think that like um, anyone who reads the article will see the layers of security they've put in place. And I think uh, and one of the, the points the article makes is that um, Apple isn't monetizing your info right the way that other uh, platforms or uh, you know companies would so they don't need to worry about that kind of stuff apple doesn't make money from their apps necessarily they make the vast majority of their money from selling you products and that's why they can get away with not worrying about having your data it's not part of their uh, monetization plan which is great news and i think that like this article really underlines the the larger idea of how they are to their detriment, as you were saying, protecting their data, which I think is a really good step up. And I'm very interested to see in the next year, will I swing around to Apple Maps? I'm not sure. Uh, my Google Maps is connected to my Google account, which I do various things with. So it's easier to find a lot of things cross-linking. Um, so I, I definitely would try Apple Maps again in the near future where it's to be a little bit better. So we'll see where that goes. How's about you? Well, I use both. <laughs> At the same time? 
I'll usually try to use Apple Maps, and if there's some weird issue, usually with Apple Maps, the actual routing and the turn-by-turn and stuff is actually really good. Where it fails for me is when I have to search for a nearby establishment of some kind. So let's say we're somewhere we don't know and we're looking for a restaurant. Google Maps wins almost every time. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, uh, but I guess this is kind of a wait and see thing. I don't, I, you know, next couple months, I, I'll definitely keep an eye out for this project and see where it goes and see what other people have to say about it before I make a swift judgment uh, to jump ship from Google Maps at this point. Double density. Last story in the tech section this week. It turns out if you're one of my favorite subsets of people in the world, then maybe facial recognition may not recognize you. And this may be a plus. So we are talking, of course, about uh, my friends, whoop, whoop, the ninjas, <laughs> uh, the juggalos. If you are wearing juggalo face paint, a lot of facial recognition software has trouble recognizing who you are. I never would have thought of this. But when you look at juggalo face paint, you actually can see why. The black spots uh, contrasting with the white and all that really messes up a computer's way of identifying a human face. So maybe in the future when uh, Amazon's recognition is looking for you because you've uh, jumped out instead of paying for your bill at a TGI Fridays or Chili's, uh, being a juggalo is the way to go with this. Yeah, and I'd say if you want to be mean to any customer service representatives that may be speaking to you, uh, and it might end up being Google Duplex, you'll want to wear that face paint as well. The article also makes mention of the fact that if you're in a black metal band and you decide to wear corpse paint, that uh, a lot of this recognition software will have a really hard time trying to figure out who you are, though not uh, as much uh, as a juggalo. And I, uh, the other thing that I want to mention too is a lot of this juggalo face paint is not um, professionally done, right? Like you do this at home before going to your ICP, your Blaze Your Dead Homie uh, show, right? So, you know, your Anybody Killer show. Um, and so it's not consistent, right? So that's the other uh, danger in all of this is that they're going to try and match you up through their database. And because your paint isn't as consistent, it's going to be way harder to recognize you too. You actually turned me on to once a uh, documentary about Juggalos. This was years ago. Was it American ago. Juggalo? Yeah. It was yes. a short, short, short documentary. Yeah, it was like 20 minutes. Excellent. And it really Super made me think about them because... They're an interesting. They're interesting people. They seem. It seems to be very uh, close knit community. Surprisingly enough, though, and uh, something to note is that if you are a proud owner of an iPhone X, Apple's Face ID, uh, which uses a, a different points uh, of recognition, will actually recognize you even with Juggalo paint on. Yeah, and I think that's why it works in the dark, is what they mentioned. Uh, and you also said iPhone X. It's an iPhone 10. Okay, we're gonna start this again. It's iPhone X. I don't okay. really care. <laughs> and with that, Angelo, uh, we wrap up the tech section of the first episode of the summer of uh, Double Density. We need to come up with a catcher name, maybe next episode, right? We'll, we'll figure it out sometime this week. Cool. Well, I will see you in the paranormal section. All right. What's up, UFOnauts? It's your UFO guy, Rob Christofferson. Have you ever been curious about the UFO phenomenon, but unsure of where to start? Have you ever wondered about just what crashed at Roswell? Have you ever wanted common sense advice about licking UFOs? The answers don't. Then check out the Our Strange Skies podcast, where we dive into America's rich UFO history and uncover what these sightings say about ourselves. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and most podcast apps, as well as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in Our Strange Skies. In Grey We Trust. 
Welcome back to Double Density. And as always, we are switching gears from tech to the paranormal. The first thing on the docket this week is um, a surprising story about uh, a time warp, missing time, what it feels like to go uh, without regular time for milliseconds at a time. Uh, you sent me this really strange Newsweek article about a person, a uh, UFO researcher, who has discovered that right outside Las Vegas, uh, it may be possible to lose little increments of time. Yeah, Joshua Warren. Um, apparently, he's appeared on uh, the Travel Channel's Paranormal Paparazzi, which I did not know was something that existed. That is a show? That is a show that exists? Wow, I have no idea. Yeah, Paranormal Paparazzi, some nice alliteration. More things I will ignore out in the world. And um, he said he watched time slow down 20 microseconds. So I'm not sure how one could perceive that. Through feel, mouth feel, like wine. Maybe. I, I was, I was uh, let's say, flummoxed by this article. I'm not quite sure what, he's, what readings he's looking at. Yeah, I don't know either. I, I would, I'd be curious to read about his methodology because Newsweek doesn't, the article doesn't really cover that. No, and, and speaking of this article in Newsweek, uh, this is a garbage website. Yes, the Newsweek. Uh, so is that worse or better than Forbes? It's better. Than, it's, uh, it's worse than Forbes. Okay, yeah, I agree too. It's worse than Forbes. Uh, I can't, like there's things flashing on this website. Yeah, it, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a very good website. Uh, so we won't even link to the article. Just, just know that it exists. Just exists. It's out there in the ether. But yeah, this idea of uh, time warp existing, the idea. Um, and then if you want to head over, for the one time in my life that I decide to read the comment section, there's like seven or eight right now. And it's mostly a scientific discussion about how this would work. So kudos to the commenters on this Newsweek article. I can't believe I'm saying that out loud. But hey, it's 2018. Here we are. Comments are... Um, Sometimes good, mostly bad. They used to be better back in my back in my day. Comments used to be much better. Uh, I think, though, uh, still YouTube holds the record for worst comments. Let's not even begin to dive into the treasure trove of uh, YouTube articles. That black hole of society that we're not going to enter. And I use black hole uh, very pun intended because um, part of the article does talk about the idea that uh, disrupted time is due to the result of a black hole. Yeah, I mean, Stephen Hawking has uh, talked about uh, time actually warping in certain places and this being a possibility. Uh, we also mentioned how uh, Hawking was very cheeky when it came to uh, time travel because he did hold a party uh, where time travelers were invited. Uh, we mentioned that in episode 56. And... Um, yeah, so there is some science behind this, but uh, this uh, uh, guy, uh, what's his name again? This paranormal paparazzi. Uh, <laughs> you, you clearly haven't caught on to. Yeah, uh, Joshua, Joshua Warren. Warren. Yes. Yeah, I'm not sure what he's thinking. Again, 20 microseconds. How do you perceive that? He apparently has some sort of weird instrumentation that scientists say doesn't really work the way he's explaining it works. So... I think the more interesting thing is right in the middle of the article, they mentioned that uh, NASA has found similar findings on a micro scale of uh, the idea of wrinkles in the time-space fabric, um, yeah. which I think is worth devoting more time to than this one guy outside of the uh, Las Vegas periphery. Yeah, I'll, I'll take NASA's word over it. You linked me to an article from gizmodo.com, which is titled, Our Skies Are More Watched Than Ever. So why report UFO settings on the decline? Why are they on the decline, Brian? So the the weird thing is that, so the interview people from New Fork, from MUFON, as well as some other researchers, and they don't actually have a really good answer apart from like the belief that um, alien beings 
um, and their surrounding conspiracies are exopolitical in, in, in nature, right? The idea that we're hiding something, but it's also not a good explanation as to why um, sightings are down. So they're claiming that since 2012, there's been a steady decline uh, in the number of reported sightings. And I think that's the more important thing is reported sightings, right? Yes. Um, not the fact that maybe people are seeing less. It's just that it's being reported less. Yeah, exactly. Which correlates possibly to the fact that there, people are seeing less things. Right. So I'm not sure if the number of UFO sightings is down or if it's just the number of reported sightings is down. Right. So I think we need to make that important distinction in between um, the two, I guess. Yeah. And uh, again, going back to the comments section, although there's way too many comments in this, the the first one, if you look at it, it's uh, the guy actually brings up a good point. It's because uh, cameras are better, which makes it harder for people to lie about identifying things or everybody's just staring at their phones. If you well, so there's there's that. But if you follow my favorite theory, all of this tech is derived from what, Angelo? From the crashed craft at Roswell. I feel yet again a man vindicated in this uh, little bit of the world that I live in with that theory, though it is a fun theory to 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 think about. Really, I don't know if it's necessarily like the right theory, but I think it is a theory that ties a lot into what we believe. But to get back to the article um, at hand, right? So I think organizations like MUFON become less and less relevant for a couple of reasons um, beyond the tech, right? So I think historically, these are like a lot of these organizations uh, were seen as like more vital, I guess, in the exploration of the the lights in our sky, right? So the idea that these are, are more so uh, pillars, I guess, of the community in the last decades as information sources uh, were more centralized, uh, you could more easily find ways in which to join organizations like MUFON. And lately, MUFON has um, had a, let's say, tarnished reputation with some of the company they keep. We'll get into that in a bit, right? Um, and I feel like uh, these days, the points of entry for a lot of these organizations are more nebulous, especially if you don't have a really good online presence, right? It's almost like a, 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 a if you know, you know kind of way. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, and we've had friends join and uh, leave these organizations. Well, right. Actually, in MUFON's case, there are very specific reasons why they're uh, not being treated with the same reverence they once were, right? So uh, this is a plug, right? So if you want to hand it over to our friend Rob's podcast, Our Strange Guys, check out the episode, Candid Conversations with Myself, Everything's Coming Up Clown Pants, to hear a firsthand narrative of a lot of the issues um, related to MUFON he had during his time there, as well as an explanation of their sort of uh, recent uh, brain drain and why their organization itself uh, is in somewhat like a sad state of affairs, I guess would be the best way of putting it. And he also really lays it on the line and it's really worth a listen. Also, like he talks about clown pants, looking UFOs. If that's not a selling point, I really, really don't know what it is. So I think MUFON being the premier organization and also having so many um, now public facing problems definitely does not help its case. Something else uh, we've discussed is that the sites have to make it easy to report and Maybe that's something that's an issue. Maybe that's something that's blocking people from reporting is that right now it's so easy to do things online. And as soon as there's even just a remote barrier to do something, people won't do it. Oh, I agree with you. I think so. Firstly, like on a higher kind of level, right on uh, the way that we talk about the Internet, I feel like the Internet has democratized the way in which we talk to each other a lot of the time. Right. So uh, with that in mind, it's also changed the way in which we view organizations hierarchically. Right. So these pillars, as we were talking about before, of the UFO community, for a lot of reasons, have lost their luster over the last little while and, and haven't been the coming together points that people used to seek out. And then plus their web presence is so feeble. And I feel like this is where our marriage of tech and the paranormal really 
uh, get together, right? So I think these sites definitely uh, do not make it easy to report uh, UFOs at all. Um, MUFON does a decent job. There's like a, a little form you can fill out. But uh, if you want to head on over to the JL and Hynek Center for UFO Studies site, which we'll link to in the show notes, I feel like this is like uh, a podcast plus pictures, like a kind of like 3D. This should almost be like a video podcast. Yeah, but it'll it'll be in the show notes, so you can just look down at your phone and uh, tap on the link because uh, you will laugh when you see these things. So yeah, you want to report a UFO on the KUFO site? You have to fill out an antiquated-looking PDF and head on over to the closest mailbox to mail it. But they, so so wait wait, but like if you look at this thing, oh yeah, they, it's they a have, scan. It's a scan. But what? It's a scan of something that was written on a typewriter with things that seem to be cut and pasted on there. Like we discussed with Desdemona, where people actually literally cut and paste things. This is what it looks like. Oh, yeah. No, it's ridiculous. Like They could be using a Google form very easily, you know, for free. But if I you mean, look at the to- site, do you think the people who run that site have any clue what a Google form is? No, and I mean, that's one of the points I want to make, right? So, you know, like, who wants to put pen to paper and then spit to stamp? Like, no one. And I understand that KUFOS is more of a legacy organization, but if you're still out here collecting information, then this isn't the way to do it. They're making things harder for people to do. Like, as soon as there is something you have to print out, or, uh, God forbid, fax it somewhere. Oh, forget uh, it. Forget it. Nobody's going to do anything. You People want to go online, click on a few things, submit something. Maybe you have to, like fill in a captcha or something but that's it also like something to notice that the majority of people these days capture and receive information through their phones right so when pictures are taken they're usually taken on a phone or even uh i don't want to say this too much but like a tablet i've seen certain instances of people taking pictures with their tablets and that's fine older people but, do that and i and i'm yeah. I, my wife and i discussed this actually the other day and we we're finding it more and more acceptable if it's an older person using their tablet because that's often the only device they have Back to taking pictures with your phone, like, therefore, wouldn't it make the most sense to optimize your website for mobile usage if you're going to want people to submit, right? Like, you kind of have to idiot-proof it. Or, 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 you know, those things called apps? Sure, let's go with an app. Yeah. Why not? Why not? Just make an app. So I tested a bunch of these, I tested a bunch of these organization websites out, and the only one that actually does the, uh, the responsive is MUFON. So think about that one. Well, like you said before, MUFON's the one that's actually furthest ahead. They're the one that seemed to have the most upkeep. Right. But even with that in mind, right? So these organizations, social media presence isn't what it could be. And as such, people don't necessarily think to reach out because a lot of this happens on socials. I feel like the way that we use apps and the way that we use social media is the front line. And a lot of the times we use the web as a backbone these days. Yeah. Um, so the, there's speaking of the web, there's the National UFO Reporting Center. Have you? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I think that's my favorite of all the sites you gave me to look at. Right. Um, right. Because it has a splash page. Oh yeah, but it's a, it's a '90s splash page that yes. you can't really. It has an know. animated GIF at the top, and it says, <laughs> "Welcome to the National UFO Reporting Center World Wide Web Site." There's a counter at the bottom, the dancing baby. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm surprised that there's no uh, there's no like web ring. It says, "Attention, webmasters! If you're linking to this page via blah blah blah, please update your link." No, oh, I know webmasters. I know. Does anybody still say that? that's a good question. Listeners of double density. Do people actually say that? Do you still refer to people casually as webmasters? Uh, go ahead on Twitter. 
double underscore density and let us know. But yeah, so if you access most of these sites, you can't actually find their social links easily. The only one that I could, and like this is tangentially related to UFO research and reporting, is CSETI. And even then, they're only linking to a YouTube page and Twitter, right? Um, and I mean, further to that, this is all reactive reporting, right? So sites like YouTube and, and social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook has your, have like a, this huge, and let's say like Reddit, for example, right? Have this huge treasure trove of information just lying there and it's all reactive reporting, right? So I've not really seen any organizations on a micro level reach out to individuals on social media or platforms like YouTube to actually like invite them to come write reports. And you're mentioning social media. I think that's actually part of the reason reports may have gone down because Guess what? People see UFO, they post it on Twitter or Facebook or on Reddit or whatever. Oh, for sure. And that's it. That's their report. Done. I think I was talking before about the democratization of the web. And apart from like a differentiation um, and sort of like an explosion of different news sources, a different number of platforms have exploded, right? So the idea of a central web with no social element to it, more or less, I mean, I'm not talking about like, you know, like user groups or whatever or news groups, but I mean like a real kind of like the web is sort of like the a one, whereas I feel now for the past like decade has really become the backbone of, of the way that we interact with beings online, I guess would be the, the best way of putting like each other online. Yeah. Yeah. You're exactly right. And I feel like that's, that's, I think you're totally right. Like people just post it to wherever they want and just kind of go, Hey, what is this? Ha ha. I saw this weird thing. Right. And I think that like a lot of these organizations can put a little work into going out and finding individuals and like getting them to write reports. And I think that like that is an important element of what's missing. I think there are a lot of things that are missing uh, from what they do, but you know, that's yeah, that's the thing too. Like uh, you were talking about the web, right? So like, uh, for example, like a legacy organization, like NICAP also has a website, but like they're definitely of like the, the hard coded in the 1997 kind of variety. The strange thing th- about the NICAP site then, which we'll link it to the show notes is that it maintains an active web store where you can buy like a NICAP hat and some DVDs and other items for sale. And they accept PayPal, which suggests that someone is out there like actively keeping this, uh, you know, alive, right? So we urge you to go ahead and visit NICAP.org to see the true bastion, like this true real bastion of 90s web dev that exists even as a legacy organization where they're trying to sell you hats. So there's nobody actually that works there or does anything there. I guess they don't listen to podcasts because there's like this one word comes to mind, Squarespace. Yeah, at Wix even. Yeah. Like, I'm sure they've seen an ad, but maybe the eight bucks a month or 12 bucks a month is too much for them. Who knows? It looks like the Heaven's Gate website (laughs) a little bit. You know what I mean? Like that kind of same aesthetic, right? Yes, I know exactly what you mean. And I think that old designs and layouts suggest a sort of stagnation. Like when you visit a website and you can't figure out what's new and what's old and if there's like no dates attached to it, right? You kind of think to yourself that this is a dead site that's being taken care of by like, you know, a, a, a like a web janitor or something that, cause there's like no, like no, no new movement necessarily. But when you start clicking around, you see, Oh, this article is from like two or three years ago. You know, this posting is from a couple of years ago. So there's like movement, but it's never clear. And it's never front page. Right. So you think that all these websites are dead when really they're very slowly being worked on, but there's no actual um, upkeep being done on a front and very center kind of way. The internet and UFOs, your two favorite things. Exactly. Right in the same place. Like fix it. You know, it's not that hard. I I think in theory, but I think that it's also a generational thing, right? So I think a lot of people um, who are either figureheads or in leadership positions in a lot of these organizations don't understand the value of a lot of what we're talking about tonight necessarily and don't see it as important when really, if you're seeing your numbers drop, especially in the case of MUFON, which is um, considered to be like the leading authority on this, right? Then like there needs to be a, a change somehow. They need some young blood for sure. They don't even have a podcast or anything. Everybody has a podcast. Right, yeah. 
these organizations are just going to go away, unfortunately. I think so too. But look, with that, maybe something a lot better will take over. Like we've mentioned, MUFON's not that great a place, unfortunately. No. No, and, and once again, like you guys should check out the Our Strange Guys episode about this. And because Rob really does a really good job of laying out a lot of the problems that he saw firsthand as a member of MUFON. And I feel like a lot of his stuff really like cuts to the heart of what they're doing. And and I do want to say, like, maybe in in slight defense of MUFON's a big organization, but the other four, they're not huge. There's maybe a handful of people there. So that's probably one of the main reasons why these sites... Well, uh, you know what? C-SETI, no. C-SETI's pretty big, right? Yeah. yeah. Isn't that, isn't that uh, uh, Stephen Greer? Stephen Greer, yeah. Yeah, no, okay. So C-SETI, they have no excuse. But like something like KUFOS or um, the UFO Center or NICAP, they're, they're probably not run by many people and none of them are probably very internet savvy. No, and I mean, I recognize the fact that these are volunteer-driven initiatives a lot of the time, right? And that they aren't necessarily held up to the same standard as like a, a for-profit company, you know, like a for-profit company necessarily. But at the same time, I think a lot of the look and the feel of these antiquated websites is due to both the membership and leadership of these organizations skewing older and not understanding the ways in which we interact with ourselves and our devices as well as the world around them, right? And I think that like, it's kind of like, I don't know if this is like a proper kind of like comparison, but it's like record companies when the digital age appeared. Yeah, I, I see that for sure. Like they didn't get on board and now they're they're sort of like, they're trying to like catch up in their own little ways, but I think that like it may be um, a lost cause, right? And I think that these organizations definitely uh, do serve a purpose, uh, especially more than ever. And I think that like it just needs to be recognized that the ways in which they need to engage the public are different than placing an ad in the back of a magazine, attending a symposium, tabling somewhere. I think those are, are vastly different than the needs of today. Yeah, I agree for sure. So I think in like in the ever changing landscape of modern technology, it seems strange that a lot of these sites dedicated to the chronicling of like futuristic crafts seem to be so far behind the times. If I weren't so in the know about this, I wouldn't even bother trying to report anything. I don't think you would either, right? Not at all. And I, I wouldn't even know where to go. And I would probably just put something on Facebook or on Twitter and be done with it. Because if you type in report a UFO sighting, what's going to happen? Actually, have you tried Googling that? Uh, MUFON and then a bunch of other uh, news stories about UFO reports. So you, uh, so MUFON wins out on this. Well, I think that like in terms of like SEO, like that's not even going to happen for these other websites. No, not even close. And I, I, I don't mean to rag on these websites necessarily. And I understand these organizations have limited capabilities. Like, don't get me wrong about that. But at the same time, I feel like if you're going to, if you're going to do this service, like do it a little more properly. I guess is like my way of saying it or else just don't do it at all. That's, that's not wrong. I also feel like this is the time of like a paradigm shift. And also to sort of like skew the other way. I feel like there are, as you're saying, like more and more and more postings on social media that are easily weighted through. But at the same time, like it's good to document them. It's absolutely important. Like uh, we keep coming back to, to social media and stuff. Yes, you can put it on that, but it is important to have something maybe not necessarily uh, on paper, but uh, just somewhere like classified, right? Yeah. Uh, top secret with a big red stamp so that it goes right. across the bigly desk. top secret forever don't open exactly perfect <laughs> but i feel like this is a great time to have a conversation about how um moving forward uh there is a need for uh not necessarily an organization but maybe a group of people to come together and really start harvesting what's out there um already existing on the web and sort of collecting things and very quickly like for example like if you visit the ufo subreddit like the debunking that happens there is instantaneous for a lot of these pictures that get posted yeah it's actually pretty good and that's what would probably be a good place to start for an organization to 
become a become something that could actually handle reports and hopefully we have some friends that would be really good at this but they don't necessarily have the time for sure and i think that's the other thing too is like this is a commitment right and you know i'm sitting here in my ivory tower of ufo judgment casting my looks upon down these organizations uh, when really like i myself don't have that much time to dedicate to something like this would i be interested absolutely but at the same time like i don't want to make it my life's work necessarily Anyways, all that to say that I think this is the beginning of a series of conversations people need to have with each other with regards to how they treat the internet and UFO reporting, don't you think? Yeah, exactly. So with that in mind, uh, we are kind of wrapping things up here for episode 63. One very, very, very quick note, though, is that we got a brand new review on iTunes, and this comes from Kimba125. She says, love both of your topics. Great cast. Graveyard Tales got me hooked up with you guys, Kimmy. So thank you, Kimmy, for the review. As always, we're always, I don't want to say like shamelessly begging, but we'd, we'd, we'd enjoy a new review or two once in a while, right? Yeah. And uh, also, uh, thanks to Matt and Adam for uh, hooking us up. Yeah, great podcast. Go check out Graveyard Tales. They're doing Cryptid Month right now, right? Or sorry, Lake Monster Month. So if you guys want to go ahead and check that out, as always, you can find us on the internet over at Twitter at double underscore density, facebook.com slash double density podcast. Same thing on Instagram. And head on over to double density.net to see all of the newest shows, the different services by which you can subscribe to us. You can look at our little pasty white faces on the host's profile. And we are slowly but surely working on the blog section because it's been quite and quite. And I know we mentioned it a bit, but we have a couple of things in the pipeline um, that kind of coincide with a couple of upcoming episodes that we definitely can't wait to share with you folks. This has been it for episode 63 of the Double Density Podcast. Tune in next week as we look at staircases in space. How the heck do they even get there? Angelo, I will see you next week. See you next week. Greeting cyberspace. Oh, <laughs> that was a weird intonation. I know. Uh, not niche people. Can I take that again? No. No!